You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How are we doing this morning? Good? Yes? Great, great. Well, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. And for those who are visiting with us for the first time, just so you know, my name is Dan Hutchins, and I'm typically not the person that you would see on a Sunday morning. And so uh, that being said, we are right in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11, plugging along in the book of Mark. Hopefully we'll be done at some point in the future, but it's probably not going to be the near future. So uh, Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read the whole passage and then make a couple of comments and we'll get right back in it. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it already was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is a pretty tough passage to teach on because there's a, uh, for a couple of reasons, but um, one of which is this passage is wrought with Old Testament messianic prophecies being fulfilled. There's some details in this passage that us 21st century American folk might not pick up that a Jewish rabbi might absolutely pick up. And so this is kind of a tough passage, and uh, so I'll just preface, uh, the first half of the sermon notably is just a touch on the boring side. I'll just give you that right up. Um, But there is some absolute gold in the the passage. I think there's some great things in there that are going to be helpful for you. And so the trick is, the key to understanding this passage is we have to understand it um, in how a Jewish rabbi would understand it, because Mark is trying to build within this scene certain details that uh, are basically Jesus fulfilling prophecy in order to show everybody that Jesus is Lord. That's the big ho- the hope for today is that our understanding of Jesus being Lord and our faith in the reality of Jesus being Lord will will deepen and will expand just a little bit. And so that's that's what Mark is doing. And so. Um, so this is a kind of a tough passage, though, and so, but I do think it's an important passage, and, um, but we'll, we'll do it. We'll get, we'll get after it. It'll be fun. We'll try to make it as fun as, we, as fun as we can. Good? Okay. Overview of Mark. Here's where we are in Mark. Let me catch you up. Mark is nicely divided in, in two halves, roughly. So the first half of the book of Mark, Jesus hit the scene and was basically trying to convince everybody that he was king. So that's the theme of the first half of Mark is Jesus is king. He's casting out demons. He's doing miracles. He's, uh, he's, he's calming the sea. He's just doing a lot of stuff so that everyone would see this guy has power and authority. 
Then in Mark chapter 9, we have the transfiguration passage. It's where Jesus goes up on a mountain, and God identifies Jesus as the Son of God. And then Jesus comes down off of the mountain and is entering into the last phase of his ministry for which is going to be the death and the, the crucifixion and death of Christ. And we're in a passage in Mark 11. We're right before the last five days of Jesus' life, the last few days of Jesus' life. We're, we're just walking up the gate, and so that's where we are in the, in the book of Mark. And so we'll look at four things today, starting with the beginning. Let's look at the first verse, Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So let's note the geographic place that this is taking place. This is at the Mount of Olives. Your subtitle in your Bible probably says the triumphal entry. We're not actually in Jerusalem yet. We're about two miles outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is, uh, is this mountain that is about, I think, 3,000 um, feet above sea level, and it sort of is positioned uh, to where you could see Jerusalem under it. Jerusalem is about 2,500 um, feet above sea level. And so the Mount of Olives is up here. And you can kind of see Jerusalem down there. And so this is where Jesus is. We haven't quite made it into the gates of Jerusalem. This is kind of a lot of people, a lot of people read this passage. There's several things in here that we read and we just, we're just, we don't, we don't get. And this is one of them. We're outside of Jerusalem, approaching Jerusalem. And so this is important because this is a messianic prophecy being fulfilled. And so if you've got a Bible, flip over to Zechariah chapter 14. I'm going to give you just a minute to find Zechariah. Um, I, was, I was going over all of my notes yesterday, and um, my, the binding to my Bible fell apart. My Bible just came to pieces yesterday. So I had to buy a new Bible, which makes turning the page really difficult. So I have these handy little green things to help me, but you don't have those. So go ahead and find Zechariah. That was my filler while you find Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verse 1, says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken up from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by very wide valleys so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. This is Jesus strategically choosing to enter in Jerusalem via the Mount of Olives, that route. It's like what we're going to see Jesus doing is he's going to build in some details into this passage, and Mark's going to record some details for the reason that the readers would see that Jesus is Lord, that the Old Testament is prophesying what the Old Testament is wanting, a Messiah and a King and a Lord to come is actually having in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is a really cool passage because it it actually did happen. Like this this passage is recorded in all four of the Gospels. You know we only have the birth of Jesus in two out of the four Gospels, but in this we have the triumphal approach. This is Easter, this is Palm Sunday recorded in all four of the Gospels. 
It's like Jesus wants everybody to know, I am the guy that has been prophesied about all over the Old Testament. I'm the fulfillment of those prophecies. And we're just going to see a couple. This is unbelievable. Let me tell you why this is unbelievable. The Bible was written over the course of about 1,500 years with 40 plus authors from all different trades prophesying, telling the same story. And what we're seeing is prophecies a hundred year, hundreds of years before this text in Mark coming true in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no other written document that has cool stuff like this. So we just need to open up our hearts and let the lordship of Jesus, to let this speak into our lives that Jesus actually is Lord and he actually is alive today. So we just see that, right? See, if, you don't re- if you don't know the Old Testament, though, you, know, you, don't, you don't see the Mount of Olives as, a, as an awesome messianic prophecy being fulfilled. You see, here's the thing. They, the, you know, the Jews in the first century, they, they don't have iPads and televisions and sources of entertainment like that. You know, we don't, they don't have March Madness on Saturday night, you know. You know when Bracket was busted last night with Florida losing? Did anybody have that happen? I did. I had that happen. They got geared up. Literally, they would probably get excited. Hey, what are you doing tonight for fun? We're, gonna, we're, we're going to have Deuteronomy read aloud to us. That was kind of their, you know, I was pumped them up. That was something that, so they're very acquainted with these Old Testament things that we may or may not be so acquainted with. And so the first thing we see is we see this beginning, we see this setting, and we also see that there's messianic prophecy implications. My friends, if you came to church this morning and you were like, I want to hear a sermon on messianic prophecies being fulfilled, you have come to the right place. Let's keep going. Let's look at Jesus' actions. Verse 2. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, it will, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt and at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret this passage. One way is to say, Jesus foreknew, like prophetically foreknew, that this colt existed in the town, and the disciples were going to go there, and it was going to be exactly how Jesus prophetically knew it to be, because he's omniscient. That's certainly a way to interpret it. A lot of people think that Jesus made arrangements for this cult to be picked up at an earlier date, which is, that's the team I'm on. We don't have to fight. We don't have to compete on each other on this one. We can agree to disagree and move on. But earlier, John's gospel says that Jesus was just formally in Bethany just a couple of weeks before where we are in Mark because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it wouldn't be unlikely for Jesus to, um, to work out an, an arrangement, with negotiate a deal with this owner of the colt. Hey, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be here and I'm going to need a colt and yada, yada. And so there's different ways to interpret this passage, different ways to think about it. Not a huge deal, but in addition to seeing the, um, the geographic region, we see two other details that are just all over the place screaming, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy. And so the first is the tie-untie language. Let me read this to you, and you tell me if something pops out on the page. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt 
tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And they said, what are you doing? Untying the colt. In just a few verses, we see the word tie and untie all over the place. Let me tell you something about Jesus. I've said this before. Jesus is a smart guy, which I always like making ridiculous understatements, just to kind of throw you off a little bit. He knows what he's doing, and he's got purpose behind what he's doing. And he's using the terms tie and untie very strategically because back in Genesis 49, there's a prophecy about that very thing. So if you've got a Bible, let's flip over to Genesis 49. I didn't think of a filler for that little brief interlog. I'll try to do better next time. 49 verse 10, it says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and what God is saying is that there's going to come a king out of the tribe of Judah. We know that later in the Old Testament, David comes out of the tribe of Judah and establishes a kingdom in Israel. But then David dies, Then Solomon takes over, and then it kind of unravels, and it kind of goes bad. So David wasn't this guy. But there's going to be a man that comes out of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David. This is what's happening right now. So the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11. Binding, it's the same word for tying, binding his foal, It's another word for donkey or young horse or colt binding his foal to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. So we've got this binding tying ordeal. We've got a donkey, a colt, and then we also have a vine in this messianic prophecy. In Mark chapter 11, we have a tie language all over the place. We have a colt, a a donkey, a young horse, and Jesus in John 15 says, I am the true vine. We have in Mark 11 all kinds of messianic prophecies being fulfilled right now. It's like Jesus is wanting to say to everybody, what you've been waiting on people, I am fulfilling. I am those prophecies that you've heard. I am the guy that's going to fulfill them. It's a very interesting passage that we just see all of these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Once again, you might not care a lot about this. I think you should because this is Jesus saying, I am Lord. There is a Lord. He is alive. It was this man, Jesus, in this passage. It's the same man who's going to who's going to be crucified and die and rise, ascend into heaven, seated on a throne today, and will eventually come back to take his bride and to reestablish the actual kingdom on earth. This is the guy, and it matters for your life because you're either part of his kingdom or you're not part of his kingdom. You either believe he's Lord and he's alive or you don't. And he's trying to, you know, we're building in details in this passage so that Jesus and everybody and Mark can see this guy is legit. This guy's truth. This guy is alive and he's Lord. He's alive and he's Lord. So we see those things. And then we see, um, and let me just stop. We got to talk about this. I almost forgot to talk about this. In this passage, there's unbelievable irony. 
that the king of kings and the lord of lords would go and get a colt to ride in on. In that day, Greek and Roman armies dominated everybody. And it wasn't unusual for them to get a chariot or a war horse to enter into a city for which they are about to go to battle with. They would get these big chariots and these big war horses. And Jesus is about to, he's about to fight somebody. We're going to learn about this in a little bit. But he chooses a little bitty donkey, a little bitty baby horse to ride in on. And the irony is, you see in this passage, both, follow this, the kingship of Jesus and also the approachability of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. You see both King Jesus, Lord of Lords, and also approachability Jesus. It's what theologians call transcendence. That Jesus is high above, God is high above in the heavens. He has absolute power, sovereignty, power, glory, sits on a throne. But we do not just have a God who is far off in some kingdom sitting on a throne that's far away from us. But we also have a God who is very near to us, who is presently with us, who is approachable, who calls us to come to him. This is the only religion that has both. A God who is King of kings, Lord of lords, high and lifted up, transcendent, yet imminent, personal, approachable. And we need both. We need, we need God to be both of those things. Like some of us, we emphasize and think of God only in terms of king. He's a king somewhere out there. He's somewhere in that kingdom, sitting on some throne somewhere out there. And what that does to us is it, it creates in us a lack of desire to draw near to God. Well, I've sinned and I have guilt and maybe this king will disown me and maybe this king will not approve of me and maybe this king will reject me. If you only think of God through kingship categories, there will be nothing inside of you that actually wants to go to him. And for those of you, you need to hear that God's approachable. God is approachable. He's an approachable kind of God. And others of us, we emphasize only the approachability and the grace of God. And what the, the danger with only emphasizing and thinking about God in terms of approachability and grace is sin might start to happen in your life and you'll be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin forgetting that God is a king and God does command things out of us. That God is powerful. That God is an authority. And that God is a big, that God should create some levels, lots of levels of fear and reverence and worship for him. And some of us need to be reminded of the reality that God is a king. He is king. No, no authority on earth. Nothing has authority like God has authority. No one. And that God says, there's obedience. I'm calling you and I'm commanding things out of you. Man, some of us might overemphasize the approachability of the grace and we might need to just hear and be nudged back into reminding ourselves that he's also a king. He's also king. We see irony in this passage all over the place. The king of kings, lord of lords, on a little bitty donkey. It wouldn't be very approachable if Jesus was on this huge, massive chariot. That doesn't scream approachability. The crowds would stand far away he comes in on a donkey. I just think that's cool. Let's keep going. The crowd's response is just 
awesome. It's greatness. Let's look at it. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches or palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about who this crowd is. You've probably heard preaching. I've probably said this before. So I would be a hypocrite if I just talk badly about preachers right now. But I've prob- some, some, you've probably heard before, what a fickle crowd this is. What kind of crowd would be celebrating Jesus only to, on the next subsequent days, turn their back on Jesus and put him on trial and ultimately push him into crucifying? You, probably, you might have heard that before. Well, there's actually two different crowds in this passage. There is the, there's the religious bigot crowd. We actually haven't seen them yet. That's going to happen. We're going to see a religious, staunch, legalistic, religious crowd tomorrow in the next passage. But today, this crowd is different. This is the crowd that's been following Jesus and likes Jesus. So as we've been studying the book of Mark, you've probably picked up on the fact that there are 12 disciples who follow Jesus, and there are also, there's also a larger crowd around Jesus that's following Jesus as well. This crowd, when Jesus starts to go on trial and be crucified, they just disappear. They're just nowhere to be found. And so this crowd actually likes Jesus, and they've been, this crowd has been teaching and hearing Jesus teaching, and they've witnessed Jesus' miracles, and they've seen Jesus do cool things, and so generally speaking, this crowd is really, really excited. And we also, so they do things that express their excitement. They take their cloak, and they lay it down before Jesus as he walks with the donkey over their cloak, and then some of them take their cloak and tie it around the colt so that Jesus can have sort of a makeshift saddle. That's really cool. I mean, it's just, this is just a really cool detail that, you know, their cloak was a big deal. It wasn't like our closets where we have several different jacket options. That's not the idea here. In first century, their cloak functioned many different ways. It was obviously a, a jacket. It was a, they probably only had one of them. And they, it functioned as a jacket to protect them from weather elements. And also the cloak would be their blanket if they slept outside many times they would use their cloak as a as a blanket and so to say to take off their cloak and to put it down in front of Jesus and to tie it around the colt would be a sign of great reverence a sign of great that there's majesty and royalty present it happened in second kings we're not going to read it but there was times where kings would walk in and people would take off their garments and set it down before uh, before the the king who was entering in This is exactly what's happening. We see that people are genuinely excited about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem and coming in to start this bringing down of the kingdom. And we also see that they did a chant. Let me read this to you. And those who went before them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. And we see in this chant, now here's the deal, you've got to stay with me right here. Right here is where we're going to continue pushing along, but there is gold at the end of this. So you've got to stay, you've got to stay with me right here. Now this, this chant is an interesting chant. It's out of Psalms 118. It's a halal chant. And um, they, this, this group, this crowd is excited, but it's confused excitement. 
you see in this chant that they reference the, the coming of David, the coming of our father David. They're going to bring in a kingdom. And at the end of the day, this group of people does not think that Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and die and rise and give us salvation for our sins. They think, this group thinks that Jesus is going to come in and begin to establish an earthly dominion, an earthly kingdom, an earthly political national Israel kingdom, and um, go to war with Rome. That's what they think is going to happen. This is called confused excitement. That's the crowd's response. They are conf- they're, they're excited, but they're also sort of confused. And we can't be too hard on them because they only know what they know. They don't know what we know about how the rest of the gospel unfolds, so we shouldn't be judgmental towards them. They just don't have a category of thinking any differently. See, in 1000 BC, um, this David was the king of Israel, and the kingdom, 1000 BC, was doing great. It was one of the peak times in Israel's history. And then David died, and the torch was passed to Solomon, and Solomon regained kingship and kind of unraveled a little bit. Then Solomon died and the whole kingdom started unraveling, just unraveling to the point where in 922 BC, there was a split in the Israelite nation kingdom where we had the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. And uh, after a brief period um, in 722, the Northern kingdom was annihilated by Assyria The southern kingdom of Israel was annihilated by Babylon. And then there was, at this point, then the Old Testament just stopped. And at that point, there was no national kingdom Israelite presence in the world. They had been dominant. They were Israelites, but they were ruled and governed by other countries. Does all that make sense? I'm going somewhere with this. You got to get excited about this. I'm going somewhere with it. So then, have you ever wondered what happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? In your Bible, there's only one page, but there are actually about 400 years of history that's not in our Bible. So at this point, Israel is done. There's no Israelite nation. There's nothing like that. And then we have what's called the intertestament period. Here's what happened in this 400 years. Rome came in and dominated everybody. Long story short, Rome owned 75% of the known world in between the Old and New Testament, and they established this huge road system made traveling safe and easy. There was no world wars going on. It was safe. There was this huge road system where people could travel. They also made a worldwide language. Everyone spoke Greek at this time. It was like in the providence of God, there would be a great time, now would be a great time for a man to come into history with a message for the entire world. You picking up on that? kind of being sarcastic right now. It's an opportune time for Jesus Christ to come right into the world. So Jesus hits the scene, and the Israelites are depressed. I mean, they're just depressed. There's no kingdom. We have all these messianic prophecies. We have all these things that were said about this earthly kingdom being established. We thought it was going to be with David. That didn't work. Solomon, not so much. It unraveled, and now we're, now there's nothing So this crowd is looking at Jesus going, you're the guy that's going to dominate Rome and give Israel this unbelievable kingdom on earth and our lives are going to flourish and this is what's going to happen. And here's the gold. I say all that to tell you this is the gold, is that God's agenda, Jesus' agenda is bigger and more necessary and more eternally kingdom-minded than our agenda. It's exactly the gold. This crowd is confused with, they're, they're excited 
but they're confused. And what we see is that Jesus' agenda is far better and bigger and more kingdom-minded than this crowd's agenda. And if you think about it, what if this crowd got exactly what they want? What if this crowd, what if Jesus came in, dominated Rome, established an Israelite kingdom, and then, um, you know, this crowd would probably have had an easier life, a more comfortable life, a, you know, their quality of life might have gone up a little bit, but they would have died and they would have gone to hell. They would have died and gone to hell. But Jesus says, I've come with a bigger, better, more kingdom-minded agenda. This crowd is excited, but confused excitement, unsure excitement. Jesus has a better agenda. I was just thinking about just confused excitement the other day, and a couple of years ago, um, I don't know if you know me very well, but I'm a sports guy from way back. I love sports, competitive. Um, I just, I've, I don't, you know, play a lot now, and I'm comp- really competitive for better, for worse. By that, I mean mainly and only for worse um, but my wife is not competitive at all. She has no competition, doesn't really like sports, didn't really grow up playing sports. And, um, you know, I've got enough competitive nature in me for two people. Uh, but because my wife is awesome, she tries, to, she tries to have the same passions that I have. We try to have some common interest in some things. And she's been trying, and now she has a son. We have a son now. And so uh, we're, we're trying, she's trying to develop more of a sports awareness. And a couple of years ago, um, we were getting ready to go to a Rose Bowl game. It was a Rose Bowl championship football game, and my wife walks out of our room, and she is decked out in cow- Dallas Cowboy attire. <laughs> Thinking, looked at her and was like, sweetheart, you know, um, you're close. You're close. <laughs> we're the right sport, we're the wrong team, and we're the wrong league. But, you know, I appreciate you for trying to, and this is just an example. It's a confused, she was just, oh, we're going to watch the Cowboys play. I was like, oh, you're you're excited, but you're really confused. You're really confused. (laughs) And in the day, this is exactly what's happening to this crowd. This is exactly what's happening. So let me just ask you a question, just to get right down to the heart of this passage and to the heart of this sermon. This is just the heart of the passage. What sort of Jesus do you long for? What sort of Jesus do you long for? So I think for a lot of us, we have an agenda in life. We have our own agendas. We have careers and jobs and hopes and dreams. And and what kind of Jesus do you long for? What happens when when your agenda, when God says to your agenda, we're going to take that and we're going to go a different direction? We're going to take your idea and your plans and we're going to go a different direction. Does that decrease your level of worship, awe, and appreciation for Jesus Christ? Let me ask it to you this way. Do you just worship Jesus because he's Jesus? Is salvation of sins, right standing with God, union with Christ, justification, um, future eternal inheritance, living with God forever, is that enough for you? I think for a lot of us, we have agendas of our own that get set. And Jesus might come along and say, you know what, we're going to go a different direction. I just wonder sometimes what sort of Jesus you long for. I was reading up on this passage and, you know, a guy gave just a great, some great advice, some great illustrations of what kinds of Jesuses we long for. It's like some of us long for the Prozac Jesus. 
This is the Jesus that's going to numb all of our problems and make us feel better. That's, if we could just have a numbing of all of our problems and if we could just feel better, then, then I would love Jesus. That would create excitement and worship for Jesus Christ. And some of us want the target Macy's Jesus. This is the Jesus where we can go to him and get anything we want. We want a career, it's there. We want a better job, we want a better, uh, more, a better house, a better car, we want more things, we want better, you know, more obedient children. We just want Jesus to give us exactly what we want. Some of us want the, the Macy's target Jesus. Some of us want the district attorney Jesus, where you've been wronged by a lot of people, sinned against, and you want Jesus to find the people that have sinned against you, and you want him to, on the spot, condemn them and send them to hell, judge them as a district attorney. Some of us want the district attorney Jesus. Some of us want the vacation, the vacation planner Jesus. I just want to have a, a more comfortable life. I just want to have an easier life. I want to have a less stress sort of life. And here's the reality, church, is are we, are we and are you submitting your life to Jesus' agenda for your life regardless of his agenda being different than your agenda? What sort of Jesus do you long for? I'm going to read Philippians to you. This is kind of on the spot. We're officially in a rant right now. You ask yourself this question. What is Paul's agenda for Jesus and for God? Yes, and I will rejoice. That's him in He's in prison right now, just in prison. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, and my desire is to depart and be with Christ. My desire is to die and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This man had an unbelievably difficult life, and what Paul is saying is I'm gonna bow my knee in submission to Jesus Christ's agenda for my life and put my agenda down. It's an unbelievable passage. What sort of Jesus do you long for? Fourth, let's look at the ending. Mark 11, verse 11. An unbelievable shift is happening. Celebration to silence and solitude. We have this wedding processional coming to Jerusalem and we're about to have a funeral. Really interesting. This is verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. We had already looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. There's no more celebrating. The celebration is on, over. The crowds that were loving Jesus, Hosanna. They're like, yeah, I'm tired. I'm gonna go home now. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem. I love this scene. I just think this is so, he walks into Jerusalem and he comes into the temple. The temple's key because for the next five, six days, he's gonna spend a lot of time in the temple and he comes into the temple and he sees all of these problems 
The next passage is about Jesus turning over tables and running thieves out of the temple. And Jesus kind of late at night and he comes in. And I can just imagine him sitting down in the temple, looking at all of this stuff and thinking, tomorrow I'm going to come and I'm going to fix all of this nonsense. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wage a war, a small war, before I go to war with Satan, sin, and death. I'm going to go to war with these religious legalists who where the temple is their center of religion, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this temple and I'm going to run people out, and then I am going to replace as the center. Jesus is now the center. He's now the temple. We just had this cool little word, this cool little theme that we see. Jesus comes in and just sits down and goes, there is so much craziness going on. There's Satan, sin, and death. There's religious Jewish people who have made the temple the sinner, and they've made it illegalist. There's thievery going on in here. And Jesus, I just love this. At the end goes, tomorrow, it's on. I'm going to fix all this. I just love that about Jesus. But first he goes, I'm going to go sleep first. <laughs> like, have you ever been in and had a night where you're looking at your calendar and you're going, I don't want to go do my life tomorrow. I, there's work, I have that conflict, there's that stressor, there's that thing I don't want to do. It's like Jesus knows about that. Jesus is walking in the temple very late at night going, it's about to be a very difficult five days. About to be a very difficult five days. But what an encouragement that Jesus presses through and now becomes the center of our Christian faith, that we don't have at the center of our Christian faith a temple built by people, but a person who reigns forever. That's encouraging. Here's how we're going to close. We've got the Lord's Supper that we're going to do. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you some space to think about your life. It's what we do before the Lord's Supper. To identify unrepentant sin that you might have in your life. Um, This is a hard discipline. And we want to give you space to think about your life and reflect upon you and the gospel. And where you might have fallen short, where you need forgiveness. And, you know, the linchpin of sanctification is faith and repentance. And we can't have faith and repent if we don't identify sin in our life. And we can't move forward in the Christian life if we're not having faith and repenting. And so I want to give you a few moments just to think about your life and and to also think about the gospel and forgiveness and that Jesus is with you, that and Jesus has spilt his blood for you and broken his body for you. And after you've done that where you're seated, I want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper and and as you're dipping the bread and the water that you reflect upon the the broken body of Jesus and the spilt blood of Jesus. And then what I'd like to do is for all of us to come back together and we're going to have, we're going to sing a, a more quiet song during the Lord's Supper, but then we're going to sing a celebration song to close today out. Because this passage goes from celebration to funeral, but Jesus is going to rise again, and we're going to have a celebration. And so we're going to do our service the same way. We've got to celebrate. We've, I don't know if this is a celebration for you, but the talk is intended to be a celebratory time where we can see Jesus from the text. Then we're going to have a quieter time where we can address sin in our life. And then we're going to close by having a time of celebration. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.